Uh, Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra, page 389, if you're using the Pew Bible. Um, And uh, as you're turning there, let me just say, I'm going to change both my text and my sermon title. So, this is going to be fun. Um, I'm going to try to cover Ezra 1 and 2. Uh, and also changing my sermon title to But God to sort of go along with Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Uh, may the Lord stir our hearts to give praise for to him for those two words but God that he acted when we were not. Uh, let's hear now the word of the Lord. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, and goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and with gold and goods, and with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus the king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridah, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, and uh, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 bases of gold, 1,000 bases of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Shashabar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for the word that you give to us week in and week out. And we're so excited, Lord, as we come to this new study of Ezra in Nehemiah. Uh, God, it is, uh, in one sense, a tragic story, but in another sense... uh, 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 a story of hope. Uh, Lord, we just pray as we live within that tension ourselves that, God, you would speak to us this morning. Uh, God, that we would hear your word and, and turn to you, uh, knowing that you are a good and a faithful God. We pray in your name. 
Amen. Well, I just have to say this. There's always something I leave out of the overview that I wish I would have uh, mentioned the week before, right? And as we looked at an overview of Ezra and Nehemiah last week, uh, this week I was just thinking, I thought, oh my goodness, I left out something very important. And that is this. That in the English Bible, our Bible is organized by genre. In other words, by the type of literature that it is. And so the books of the Pentateuch are, are put together. The books of the history are placed together. The prophets are grouped together. The uh, gospels are grouped together. You know, that is this, So it's not in chronological order. And so you could easily look at the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and think, okay, that's about halfway through the Old Testament is where this is taking place. But actually the events that we're talking about are taking place at the end of the Old Testament. Okay, um, back, really, Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all those books sort of go together, sort of the same time period. And so what, what is happening is, is basically this, if I could just give you a quick, brief overview of the Old Testament, you know, that at least from the beginning with Abraham, that God calls Abraham, makes a covenant with him, and promises that he will make him into a great nation. And so God does. God uh, takes his family and grows it into a nation. They go into slavery, but God redeems them and calls them out of Egypt. And uh, he brings them in, gives them their own land and their own city and their own worship of God. And God establishes a, a relationship with these people. And, and, and Israel blossoms and it grows. But of course... Israel also struggles with sin. And, and while God is overseeing his people, they want an earthly king. And so God gives them a king, and there are good kings that rule, there are bad kings that rule. But eventually, the kingdom of, of Israel divides into two parts, the northern and the southern kingdom. And they continue to sin against the Lord. And if you want to see how awful and gross their sin is, look at Second Chronicles 36, 16. Just right before this. And, and you see that God's people are just rebellious. They're, they're turning down the word of the Lord as God sends his prophets. They're ignoring him. They're, they're just not listening to God. Their hearts are very hard. And so God sends them into exile. And, uh, you know, first the northern kingdom to Assyria and then the southern kingdom, Judah, into Babylon. And they're there for decades uh, as a matter of fact, there are those that are born in exile, and they don't know anything but that. And uh, eventually, then, God comes and God delivers his people, which is what we see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and God reestablishes temple worship. He sends the people to Jerusalem. He, he also works in their midst to, to stir up the covenant community and, and renew the covenant with God. And, and everything looks really great. But the problem is, is at the end of the book, things are just as bad in one sense as what they were before they went into exile. The people's hearts still are going astray. And so we sort of end the Old Testament with this question like, what is the hope for God's people? You know, they just keep being drawn back to sin and rebellion against God. And so there's just sort of this ending that's not most comforting for us. And then on top of that, then there's 400 years of silence where God doesn't say a thing. And then 400 years later, 
the first word that God speaks is of redemption, of sending the Messiah. Now, I'm sorry I left that out of the overview, because that's sort of important, you know, because, you know, folks, that's, that's where we live. Ezra and Nehemiah, while it's not the most inspiring story as far as the faithfulness of Israel, it gives us hope as we look around at the world, as we look around at the church and that's filled with sin and with unfaithfulness. I mean, Matt, you know, this morning, reading from the New Testament, read from 1 Corinthians, and where Paul is talking about sin, and he goes, I'm not even talking about the sin that's out there in the world. I'm talking about the sin in the church. And it, the sin in the church is worse than the sin that's out there in the world. It's, it's about things that the world wouldn't even talk about. It's so awful. And it gives us hope. Not because the church is so great, but because our God is faithful. Amen? Amen. And so as we come to Ezra and Nehemiah, it's a, it's a wonderful book of hope as we see God's faithfulness. And so I just want to sort of show several ways that we see God's faithfulness in, in the first couple of chapters. First of all, we see that God methodically directs all of history. God methodically directs all of history. I mean, if you, as you read Ezra 1... God's sovereignty just sort of leaps off the pages of Scripture, doesn't it? It's very clear that God works in history to fulfill His will. He, he is bringing everything about according to the way that He wants. Uh, one author said, he said, Behind this opening verse in Ezra lies the affirmation that all the might of the ancient world was in subjection to God and put at the disposal of His people for salvation that God is carrying out his plan of salvation. And uh, now how does God do this? Well, a couple of ways. First of all, God follows through with what he promises. God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. He follows through with what he promises. Look at verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah be fulfilled. In other words... What he's getting ready to tell us, and that is that he's going to stir the heart of Cyrus to do something, that that actually uh, comes because of what was prophesied years before uh, by the prophet Jeremiah. If you would, turn back to Jeremiah 29. Um, Jeremiah 29. Uh, I say turn back, you'll go forward to, to get to Jeremiah. Uh, excuse me, I said 29. Actually, Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, verse 8. This is what Jeremiah prophesies. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of myrrh and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. Verse 11, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. There's the exile, okay? 
Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but if you do, look, you can also look at Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. If you want to put that in your notes, 29, 10 through 14, you see the same thing being repeated. So what we see here in the exile with Nebuchadnezzar and his actions against uh, the, the southern kingdom are not just random events, but they have been prophesied. Uh, actually, they weren't first prophesied by Jeremiah, but they were actually first prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, now that that Deuteronomy, I'll give you that reference. Deuteronomy four, twenty-six through twenty-nine. Deuteronomy four, twenty-six through twenty-nine. When God said through His servant Moses, He told Israel, "You guys will turn to adultery. You will turn from Me." And on that day, He said, "I will bring My judgment upon you." And, and that was a thousand years before Ezra chapter 1. That the Lord spoke these words. Then, if you would, turn over to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. God has spoken about Nebuchadnezzar and him coming, but then in Isaiah 44, 28... We read that God says that he will use Cyrus to fulfill his purpose. As a matter of fact, he speaks specifically in verse 28 about how Cyrus will rebuild Jerusalem and also be involved in the rebuilding of the temple. And then in chapter 45, verse 1, if you're there, you'll see that then God promises that he will grasp the right hand of Cyrus to subdue the nations. Now, now think about that. Okay, you have a people that they are at the lowest point in their history. God has promised, he has made a covenant promise with them that they would be this great nation, and, and they were, but they rebelled against the Lord. And so now, here they are cast aside, here they are, they're in exile, and they have these promises that, that, that God has made, right? They have these promises um, that he would not totally abandon them, but that he would send them back to Jerusalem. That one day, Jerusalem would be rebuilt. One day, the temple would be rebuilt. And, and then here you have in Ezra 1, the fulfillment of that. I mean, I guess that would be sort of be like for us, if, if you know, we had the promise that Christ would come back, you know, and if we were still alive on that day when that happened, wouldn't that be a glorious Fulfillment of that promise, we'd be like, yes, Lord, make that today. The Lord's day, that'd be a good day. Come back today. Take us home from this world. And so they, they have the fulfillment of that. And God says, you see, God says it, and he does it. You know, that's what we see here in this text. That God keeps his promises. Even though, at this time, there was turmoil all around God's people... There was a pagan ruler who was ruling over them. God's people are in exile. Worship, which was central to the Jewish life, was shut down. And yet, God is saying, I have been at work this whole time through 
um, through the history and been faithful to keep my word and to keep my promises. Now, you know, God does work faithfully through history. And God uh, uses people also, not only his promises, but also people to accomplish his purposes and to keep his word. It's interesting to see how and who God uses to fulfill his promises. Look at verse 1. God uses Cyrus to release his people. It says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Then in verses 2 through 4, you see what that proclamation is. That is to send God's people back to Jerusalem so that they might rebuild the house of God. It's Cyprus, you know, Cyprus is really God's hand of deliverance for his people, bringing them out of exile. If Nebuchadnezzar was God's hand of judgment upon his people, then Cyrus is his hand of deliverance. And, and really what we see here is a fulfillment of Proverbs 21.1, right? Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, right? So the governments of our world, the rulers of our world, they're making decisions all the time. But it really is the hand of the Lord that is, is guiding them. And he, he has always done that throughout history. And God directs not only the, the heart of the king, but also the heart of the people, as we'll see in verse 5 in just a little bit. But, but I think we need to understand that, that God's sovereignty doesn't conflict um, with our, or, or counteract man's responsibility and behavior. Uh, the book of Ezra uh, really blends God's mysterious decrees with both the, the meaningful decisions of empires as well as the real life decisions of people. And, and I say that because Cyrus was not a believer in Yahweh. I mean, as you read verses two through four, you almost think, huh, I wonder if this guy, like, worships God. You know, because it, it sort of sounds like that, right? But, but if, you, if you turn back, I, I should have told you to keep your hands there, but if you, if you look at Isaiah chapter 45 that we were just at a minute ago, uh, where it's talking about Cyrus, uh, Isaiah goes on, Isaiah 45, uh, 4, he goes on and he says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you, that is Cyrus, by your name, I name you, though you don't know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I, I equip you, though you, you don't know me, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west <coughs> that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And so, although Cyrus, you know, it, it, the wording sort of makes it appear like maybe, did he believe in God? It leaves you with that question. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. And it is interesting, if you look really carefully at verses 2 through 4, you see that Cyrus is referring to God as the Jews' God, their God, you know, his God, the, the person who is a follower of Yahweh. As a matter of fact, uh, all that we know about Cyrus is not found in the Bible. There's extra-biblical history, too, as well. And in 1879, there actually was a clay cylinder that was discovered that's become known as the Cyrus Cylinder, and it was discovered in the temple of the moon goddess Ur, which Cyrus had repaired. And, and it was a document really about Babylon, and it claims that, that Marduk 
the, the high god of the city had named Cyrus as its conqueror. You know, that, that Cyrus was a worshiper of Marduk. There are some who think maybe he also was polytheistic, and kids, what that means, poly is many, theistic is God, that he worshiped many gods. So he was fine to worship Marduk as well as God. I mean, that we don't know for certain there are some. So it wasn't that, that Cyrus was this great follower of God and he wanted to carry out God's will. He was just a good politician. That's just the bottom line. You know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he was sort of like, you know, the way to subdue the people? Conquer them. Show them who's boss. Flex your muscles. And Cyrus is like, no, there's a better way to do that. You know, if you want people to, to if you want to maintain your empire, then allow people to have some religious freedom. And so he does that. He's a very wise ruler. And so he's just carrying out his plans. But in doing that, God is using him as his instrument to carry out his will. And, and that's what we see here in, in this text. And that's how God has worked throughout history. I mean, just think of all the prophecies that God has made through his prophets throughout time. And yet he has brought all of those things to pass perfectly. There's not one promise, not one prophecy that God has made that he has not fulfilled. And just think about how God has orchestrated all the governments of the world and how at just the right time, you know, he brought certain powers to rise and, and brought other powers low. And he did that for the spread of the gospel. I mean, think about Rome and how he brought Rome to, to power. And there were all these wonderful roads that were built that allowed travel and news to, to go here and there. Think about how he used uh, the universal use of the Greek language uh, to, for the spread of the gospel and how the New Testament was written in Greek. Was all this just a coincidence? No. You know, it's interesting that Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, when it was the right time, when, when those things that God had planned had come, just as He had planned, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Was it a coincidence? Not at all. Not at all. God is directly involved in history to carry out his plan of salvation. And, and we see this in other texts as well. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he says, this Jesus delivered up, okay, delivered up on the cross, delivered up by the Jews to be crucified, delivered up according to to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was part of God's plan. These Jewish leaders hated Jesus. You know, they hated Jesus. You know, and, and they didn't want anything to do with him. And yet they were fulfilling God's plans in the way that they were acting. And God has not only carried out his plans to the point of Christ's first coming, but he continues to do that. And it's just amazing as you think about it. But God not only uses the heart of the king, but also ordinary people. Look at verse 5. He talks about, you know, then he rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go to rebuild the house of the Lord. And that's the same language that we see of Cyrus, that the Lord here again is not leaving anything to chance. He is moving and stirring the hearts of people to bring about his work. 
And, and if you look at uh, the, the names in chapter 2, uh, you see uh, that the first part of that list is ordinary people that he, that he will use for this task. But then you see that he lists priests and he lists Levites and temple servants and others. Until in verse 64, he said there were 42,360 people that the Lord had raised up to go and to rebuild the temple. And so God methodically directs all of history. But then God also graciously preserves his people. He graciously preserves his people. Uh, this goes hand in hand with God keeping his covenant promises. God promised Abraham that he would be blessed, right? He would be as numerous as the stars of the sky, right? So Abraham would be blessed. But he also promised that Abraham would be a blessing. He would be a blessing to the nations. That through his family, eventually the Messiah would come. But, but here is the nation of Israel in exile. They're slaves, not a nation, really. Jerusalem, the city of God's in ruins, a temple is destroyed. There's no fellowship with God. For all intended purposes, it seems like the covenant promises of Abraham are no more, like I said. But notice how God then begins to tie in uh, the events with this exile of going back to Jerusalem to what has happened previously in God's works of redemption in Israel's life. Okay, if you look at chapter 2, verse 2, Ezra lists 11 leaders, okay? Well then, if you add those 11 leaders to the leader that he mentions in chapter 1, verse 11, Sheshbazar, you have 12 leaders that are leading the people back. What would have caused them to think about the 12 tribes of Israel? And then, you know, in the New Testament, we see the 12 disciples. And I'm not trying to play too much into that, but it just reminds us that God is working to graciously draw him people to himself and showing grace to them even when they are undeserving. And it just reminds them of his work. If, if you would, uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7, uh, 6 through 9. Very familiar passage. But brothers and sisters, I don't think we could read this passage enough. Uh, just to be reminded of God and the way he views us as his people. He says, uh, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and he chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a, a might, brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you with a house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh's king of Egypt, knowing therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And you see God's wonderful love to them as he reminds them that he will bring them back. But then look at chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, other sort of echoes of God's redemptive work in Israel's life. Uh, verse 6. Um, we see just like the Israelites, when they were taken out of Egypt, what did they do? They plundered the Egyptians, right? 
God moved in the heart of the Egyptians to give them riches and give them the things that they would need, that they would use later on uh, in the work of the Lord. And in the same way, we see the same thing happening here. God is calling His people from all over the Persian Empire. And He goes, and the people that are around you will give you gifts as you leave to go back to Jerusalem. That, those gifts will then be used in the rebuilding of the temple. Or what about verse 7 of chapter 1? Cyrus gave back to the Jews the vessels from the original temple that Nebuchadnezzar had made, sort of showing that continuity of the first temple and the second temple as well. And so here are God's people in the lowest point of their history, and, and they've been disciplined by God for their continual disobedience. I mean, many, like I said, many Jews in Persia had never even seen Jerusalem. They had never experienced temple worship. Maybe they'd heard their parents or their grandparents talk about what it was like to go into the temple and to worship God, but they have never experienced these things for themselves. And yet God, right? Or, or if we might use Paul's language, but God. But you see, God acted. He didn't leave his people there. He was showing them that he was about to redeem them, to do a mighty act of salvation as he had done before, that he was to show them his covenant love like he did with Israel and the great acts of redemption and bringing them out of Egypt. And he did that through the king's edict. God is calling his people to once again identify with him, to see his great acts of salvation once again. Now, only 42,000 people returned in that first wave. Okay, now think about that. That's out of millions. Okay, so all of a sudden that just seems like a much smaller number than maybe you might have first thought. Now, in all fairness, there will be another wave that will come back under Ezra's leading, and then another one that will come back under Nehemiah's leadership. But granted, I, I understand that. But, but many other Jews enjoyed just sort of blending with the heathen culture that they were in. They were fine where they were at. They, they didn't see their new life in Babylon as bondage. They felt no inclination to answer Cyrus's call. Because Cyrus says, anybody can go back. But it was only those in whom God stirred their hearts that returned to go back. Many of the Jews, like people today, hear the gospel and they don't reply because God's covenant love has not conquered their hearts. And so they remain willingly in bondage of sin and death. But God calls a remnant to return to Israel and reestablish a relationship with God. And so here's this group that seems very insignificant to the world around them. But isn't that how God works? Doesn't he use small and insignificant? I mean, that's how he worked in the Old Testament. You know, you, you think about... Uh, um, oh, the name escapes me. You have to, Gideon, you know, and how he was going to go and to conquer the enemies. And the Lord says, what? Oh, I'm sorry. You have too many men. We need to pare this down a little bit. And Gideon's like, are you serious? The army's already bigger than what I got. And the Lord's like, yeah, but we need to pare this down a little bit. And God just took him through a process until he gave him 300 men. He goes, okay, that's about right. Now let's do it. Because he wanted to show the mighty hand of the Lord. And the reality is in the New Testament, God does the same thing. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul writing to this church 
at Corinth says this. He goes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I have great expectations for Kirk of the Plains. Not because I think that we're a great congregation, but we serve a great God. Do you believe that? I mean, seriously, do you believe that? Do you expect that God could use our church in a way that may just sort of blow us away when we see how He works not only in Andover, but in Winfield, and in Newton, and Hayesville, and Wichita, and other places, that when we come to the Lord, we are praying for Him to work. We are expecting Him to work. I think that's probably the challenge that the Lord has been laying upon my heart recently as I've been praying more and more and more. You know, I was, you know, as we can sometimes struggle, you just begin to get pride. Hey, Lord, look what I'm doing. I'm praying. And the Lord began to challenge me and say, yeah, but do you believe I'm going to, I can do what you're praying? Do you expect that? You know, do you expect that person to walk in the door of your church as a new creature in Christ? Or to come and to, to hear the preaching of the Word and become saved? Do, do you expect these things you're praying for? This is how God works. You may be here this morning, you may uh, feel pretty insignificant and undeserving of God's favor and if that's the case, well, you're in the right place. If you're His child, He has called you. He loves you. And He will use you as undeserving as you might feel. You see, God initiates a relationship with us. And He sets the captives free. And it may be that you may be here today and you may not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But He's calling you to come to Him. To, to see your sin, to see your rebellion against a holy God. And He's calling you to come and to repent and to turn away from that sin and to cry out to God and to, to plead for His mercy that He might forgive you. And He says He will. Because His Son has paid your offense against God. And God says, not only would I forgive you, but I'll give you a new heart that instead of hating me, actually loves me. I will do that. Or maybe you're here today and, and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you've been struggling and maybe your life has been a life of duplicity for some time. And, you know, you come on Sunday morning, you look so good, but during the week your heart is drawn to other gods and, and sins. And, and matter of fact, you've protected those sins. And and those things. And you, you, you sought to do what Israel did. There was a lot of syncretism. They would go to the temple and worship Yahweh. And then they would go and they would worship the Baals. On the mountains. Jesus says. Come to him. Jesus says. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. Should come to him. 
So we don't need to clean ourselves up. We need to come to him as we are. And we need to, to beg and to cry out to God for his mercy. And he is a gracious and a faithful God. And he will forgive us. And so Jesus comes to humble us and to call us to himself. And that's the way that God has worked throughout history. And so you may feel unworthy and undeserving, and you are. But God says, come to me. God controls history to bring us to a point where he provides salvation for all who will come to him, to those in whom he has stirred their hearts. In the same way that God shows mercy to the exiles, so he continues to show mercy today. And so God graciously preserves his people, but God gives provision for the work that he calls them to do. Uh, it's, it's really hard to walk away from this text without seeing God's sovereignty, right? You know, uh, we, we see people making decisions and, and they act and people aren't simply robots. That's oftentimes people have that misconception about the Bible. People are responsible for what they do, but, but we also see that God, God works in and through them to bring about his will and his purpose. And God awakens his people to repent and turn to him. You see, God created humanity to have fellowship with Him, right? Which includes worship. And, and the way that we have fellowship with God is, is through that temple worship. The temple is a, is a picture of how we approach God through Jesus Christ. And, and, and so God awakens His people to belong to fellowship with Him and to be part of His work in this world. And so the people return, prepare to return. And as they do, God provides what they need. Look at Ezra chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. You see all those things that the Lord provides, the silver, the gold. Um, Ezra chapter 2, verses 68 and 69. Even when they get back to Jerusalem, the heads of the households are, are moved by the Lord to give this free roll offering for the things that are needed for the temple. And, and God doesn't command something unless he provides what is needed to accomplish it. Think about that. God doesn't command something to be done that he does not provide what is needed to accomplish it. God commands us to do something. He's already provided what we need in Jesus Christ. We talked about this yesterday in the men's discussion group about the indicatives and the imperatives. You know, the commands that God gives us, the imperatives can only be done because the indicatives are true because Christ has already done these things. And so I want you to understand that what I'm not saying is, is that God's going to give you everything you need to do what you want done or what you think you ought to do for Him. He only gives you what is necessary for what He is doing, what His will is. The second thing I want you to understand that He's not saying is, is that the provision is not always money or wealth. In this case, that's the case. But in Christ, God provides what we needed. And he provides things much greater than silver and for gold. He, he, he provides what is needed to love that most difficult person in your life. He gives you the ability to forgive the person who has wronged you terribly in your life. He gives you what is needed to endure the trials and the circumstances that you think are unbearable. And honestly, they are unbearable. But He gives you what you need. He gives you the need 
to witness when you're terrified to share your faith. God gives you all those things. Just look to God for His provision. Cry out to Him and say, Lord, please, You promised these things. I, I trust You. And God gives us everything we need to be part of the work that He calls us to to bring about His plan. And so God methodically directs all of history. He graciously preserves His people. But God zealously directs His worship. And this is going to be a much shorter point because we're going to cover it more in the weeks ahead. But, but what God is doing is calling His people back to worship. And there's a priority here if you don't see that. You know, in verse chapter 1, verse 2, we see that Cyrus is really uh, moved to build the temple. And it's interesting because the three works that were done was the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, the covenant community you know, was repenting of their sins, they were, they were being built up as a community, they were renewing the covenant with God, and then the third thing was the temple. If it were me, I would have started with the walls of Jerusalem first. You know, let's make things secure, and then let's build the temple. But that's not God's plan. God says the first priority is worship. God says the most important thing is for my people to have a relationship with me. And the way they do that is through worship. And so that's the, the priority that we see here. Uh, also, uh, if you look at Ezra chapter 2, you'll see what God is doing is He's sort of stacking the decks of people that are going back. He not only gives the provision that's necessary for worship, but the people too. And so He's sending back the, the priest. Uh, as well. But God cares how we worship as well. Um, as I read earlier in Ezra chapter 1 verse 7 it talks about how Cyrus gave back the vessels. And I talked about how that brings continuity between the first and the second temple. But it does more than that. It reminds us that God is to be worshipped as he prescribes. Those vessels were necessary for the people to worship. They couldn't just worship God any way they wanted to. He sends back the vessels to do what needs to be done in worship. And God is very careful about that. Look at chapter 2, verses 59 through 63. It's very easy just to skip over this, but there was a whole group of people that went back that said, look, we belong to the priestly line, but we just don't have proof of it. And you had to have genealogical proof in order to serve as a priest. And so they were commanded, they were not allowed to serve until God verified their call to serve in verse 63. And so they were not allowed to do that. They had to do everything decently and in order as God prescribed. God cares about how we worship. God zealously directs His worship. So now what do we do with all of this? There's a lot in these couple of chapters, and I know I've skipped over some things as well. But I just want you to, to remember these things. First of all, trust the promises of God. Trust His Word. No matter what you're going through, Trust His promises. And I also want to say this. No matter how long you've been going through it, trust His promises. You know, um, I think it, it sometimes can be easy to trust His promises when we go through things. If those things last a day or a week or a month. But when those things stretch out to decades or, you know, longer, that gets sort of hard. I know one time Robbie and I were just feeling very overwhelmed with life, which probably that's not unusual, but you know, we were just in one of those situations and it was just sort of tough and we were getting 
discouraged and then one of our kids said you know actually this is the Lord has been just like working on you guys for like 10 years you've had these difficulties in your life that you've had to deal with and I thought wow that's true and sometimes we can just get tired brothers and sisters if we've been struggling with circumstances in our life for years but I just want to remind you that God's promises are no less true than, than they were if this had only lasted a day in your life. God is just as trustworthy. So, so lean upon Him. Rest upon Him. I know you're tired. I know you're weary. I know you just want it to be over. But He just wants you to rest in Him. Let, let me encourage you. Uh, turn to Isaiah 43, if you would. Isaiah 43. It's really important that you read these verses for yourself. Isaiah 43, 1. 1 through 3. This is what the Lord says to His people. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, (coughs) O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, sometimes, brothers and sisters, it's hard for us not to believe that we won't be overwhelmed. Sometimes it's very hard for us to trust that God calls us to rest in Him. Just like Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 6, he said, and I am, I'm sure of this, I'm, I'm confident, I, I know this, I got this, that He who began a good work in you, He'll bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. We can trust this, brothers and sisters, that God keeps His promises. But also pray for God's mercy, if you would, as well. God has given you access to the throne room of grace through Jesus Christ. And come to your Heavenly Father who loves you and has initiated every act of salvation that you have experienced in your life. Anytime you have strayed from the Lord, anytime you have given yourself more to sin and then you begin to see your heart come back to the Lord you begin to see a work you begin to see a hatred toward your sin you begin to see a love for the Lord once again that's not because all of a sudden you've become a better person but that's because God is working in your heart to draw you to himself God sought you you didn't seek him so if you're struggling to hold on to the promises of God Pray for God's mercy to open your eyes and to see that while you may struggle to hold on to the promises of God, God has firmly held on to you and He will not let you go. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Lean on the provision that God has given you in Jesus Christ. He doesn't give us silver and gold because we're not building the temple, but He's given us everything. He's given us His very spirit to dwell within us to give us strength and then prioritize the worship of God he loves you and he'll not let you go trust him and cast all your burden on him 
because He cares for you. Amen? Let's bow our heads and just meditate upon the Word of God and reply to God appropriately in silent prayer. seem a lot like the Israelites in exile to look around and to see things in shambles to see the world in which we live and even the sin in the church and, and the struggle with sin in our own hearts and lives and Lord lose hope but God we thank you that you are faithful we pray that you would encourage your people today uh, as we have heard your word oh God we pray for you to work in our hearts to, to trust you, to rest in your promises, to, to, to know of your provision. Lord, not to lean on our own understanding, not to lean on our own strength, but to trust you and to know that you will make all of our paths straight. Help us, Lord. We pray you know, to look to you. We ask in your name. Amen.